0: Welcome to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. So, in this episode, I will be looking at "The Rest of the Mound" by Zelia Bishop and H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, I introduced this story in the just previous episode, and I talked about it that episode—the first couple chapters, the real background of the story, and also the the background of the story. It's uh, well, that's there's like two backgrounds here. One is the the story itself has a has a, a setup. Right of a an, an, an ethnographer going to Oklahoma to study like the mythology of the Yig and particularly to study this mound where there's all this local folklore about. But then I also talked about the background of the story itself, how it was written, and it was uh, original idea was presented by Zelia Bishop to H. P. Lovecraft, and Lovecraft developed that into the story we have in front of us, which really is a short novel, thirty thousand words or so, a novella, uh, one of his longest tales actually. How. Uh, I guess this fits as a posthumous tale from Lovecraft's point of view, because it wasn't published till 1940. Um, but uh, I believe Zelia Bishop was still alive at the time. Um, so it, you can kind of fit it with his other long tales that were published after he died, like uh, Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath and The Case of Charles Dexter Ward. Um, you know, or even I think this came out even uh, after At the Mountains of Madness, but it was written before before that story. So. It's uh, it's easy to compare this story to *At the Mountains of Madness* because it explores a civilization uh, that's kind of underground, that's discovered by explorers looking at other things. Um, but it's quite different. Actually, it's a very very different um, society. I praise this story quite a lot in the last episode, and I hold up. I think those praises hold up as you go through the whole story. I think it goes together really really well. It's one of my favorite of Lovecraft stories. So, anyways, where we left off last time is our our anthropologist after digging up the local folklore went to literally dig up the mound he was attracted by this amulet he was wearing to a specific place he digs there he finds a, a tube with a kind of writing on it that he can't really decipher and he opens it up and he finds inside of it a scroll manuscript written in spanish 16th century spanish and the text was written by one of the uh, I don't want to say explorers, conquistadors with the Coronado expedition. I was, of course, looking for Cibola. I think there's a wonderful kind of of irony in the story is um, Coronado never finds Cibola. He never finds the cities of gold. He was sent on a wild goose chase, famously by local Indians. Um, but Zamacona, our narrator for much of the story, the author of this text, did find uh, a civilization, a lost city. Um, not... Really, a city of gold, but uh, even more interesting than than gold. Anyways, that's what we got for much of the story. The bulk of the story is this Zamakona manuscript, uh, which he wrote during his time living among the uh, living among the, the the you know this living with the civilization that that dwells under the mound. It's actually a much broader civilization with different access points to the surface, but this is just one of them, right? So there's a lot of detail here. You really got to read this because it's really, really rich. But the the manuscript begins with sort of the background of Zamakona's how he discovers the mound, his relationship with the Coronado expedition. And and we even get this kind of, you know, reflections on this wild goose chase that uh, the Coronado expedition was sent on. Right. So there's frustration of these conquistadors, these conquerors, these imperialists and not getting. The payout that they wanted to get, of course, uh, Cortez got his got wealthy through the conquest of the Aztec Empire and other people wanted to replicate that. So that's what led to this these expeditions, which caused great devastation in the southwest. This, along with Curso are both stories of empire in uh, very direct ways, really kind to the history of the American empire out west. Uh, Something that's, you know, Lovecraft was writing much more about the sea under his name, but these Zelia bishop stories are set in geographically very, very interesting areas that he didn't normally explore, such as the southwest, and as we'll see in the next episode, the south, and Medusa's coil, a story we're going to have to get to, we'll get to really shortly. So anyways, uh, he eventually, you know, is able to find this passage into this underground civilization, and he actually hears rumors about, first he hears rumors about these old people, they're called, like these uh, hidden people. I guess they're called the hidden people, uh, sometimes called the old ones. And they manifest as ghosts, right? So that, that's actually the Zillia Bishop's original story idea was that there's a mound and there's ghosts. Make a story out of this. And Lovecraft decided to basically throw out the ghost idea and make these kind of guards of a civilization, right? Undead sort of gods, We'll get into these slave race that are are sustained by this civilization. Um, But he gets this story from this guy charging bull and he kind of directs him to it and we get a little bit of the mythology about them. So it seems these Indians before European contact knew something about the. the, This civilization that exists underground from rumors and stories and things like that. Um, For instance. Quote, they had a frightening beasts with a faint stain of human blood on which they rode and which they employed for other purposes. The things so people hinted were carnivorous and like their masters preferred human flesh. So that although the old ones themselves did not breed, they had a sort of half human slave class, which also served to nourish the human and animal population. They had been very oddly recruited and was supplemented by second class slave class of reanimated corpses. Quote. now obviously uh if you've read at the mountains of madness as we have on this podcast already uh you know this is this around the same time that he's writing that story he's writing this and both deal with a civilization with a slave class right uh, so it's really hard to not think about lovecraft's own reflections on america's history as a slave society right which wasn't that far in his past and of course you know it's it's got to be looked at as part of his racial politics i think a lot has been made about the, you know, how Lovecraft sort of seemed to uh, have his sympathies with the elder things, right? It's harder to see in the Mound. In the Mound, we are, we're given a civilization that's not as praiseworthy from Lovecraft's perspective. It's It's much more decadent. And that makes it more interesting because this civilization is really on its last legs. It's a civilization in decline and it's weakening and it's, it's kind of gone into itself. It stopped being interested in the outside world. In fact, it closes itself off. It becomes very interested in decadent pleasures. Uh, and a lot of what he's writing about here is the, the internal decline of this society, which is reflected by the building of these walls. And that's really wild because that's sort of, when Lovecraft writes about New England and he writes stories in New York, stories like The horror at Red Hook, the idea is maybe we need to build a wall. We need to kind of close off our civilization from these foreign influences, right? But when these people do it, it's like a sign of their kind of social decay, right? They lack what the Spanish seem to have, which is this desire to expand and conquer and go out, um, you know, very unsavory motives of course for the spanish gold conquest religious forced religious conversion genus eventually leading to genocide obviously but uh you know it, it's you know it's kind of maybe i'm thinking too much about where to kind of put this in kind of lovecraft's philosophy but definitely he's thinking about decadent civilizations in his letters we've talked about it a lot as we've read the, the various letters so um, what else do we get about these from his stories that Zama is picking up? We get some things about the, what they worship. They worship two gods. Two gods we're familiar with. Yig, who we were introduced to in The Curse of Yig. This does form a sort of sequel to that story. And uh, Tulu, Great Tulu, which is Cthulhu. From, um, we know because it's described as octopus-headed creature. Um, so they're, they're aware of both Yig and Cthulhu. So there, there. This is part of that broader cosmology that Lovecraft is working on building up in his stories. Here, um, you know, in earlier stories, there's a bit of this. There's like the Augustathos shows up in Dunwich Horror and the Case of Charles Dexter Ward. But I think it's really with The Whisper in Darkness that Lovecraft's trying to piece this together into what would become called the Cthulhu Mythos by by other people. So. Uh, <clears throat> What to say here? There's so much, um, but basically, that's he Zamakona. After hearing these stories, eventually goes off on his own, and he's like going to find this city. He thinks this may be the lost city of gold that will have this wealth for him. He thinks there's a chance to salvage this expedition and maybe become famous and rich and become, his, become a piamacuarte. So his motive, Zamakona, who we're supposed to empathize with a little bit uh, as he becomes a captive of this civilization, is you know himself of an agent of empire he's not the most uh, savory of characters so anyways chapter four um picks up with him finally getting going down into the mound he finally finds his kind of entrance in um, he gets help from from the local indians in seeking it out and he finally finds it and there's this like gold uh there is a signs of it being a city of gold so that kind of drives him to go deeper and deeper into it He think he's finally found this um and he, then he, what's really wild is he sees these people um and we get their description they quote they seem to be indians though their tasteful robes and trappings and swords were not such as been seen among any of the tribes of the outer world while their faces and many subtle differences from the indian type that they did not mean to be irresponsibly hostile was very clear, for instead of menacing him in any way, they merely probed him attentively and significantly with their eyes, as if they expected to gaze up, to open up some sort of communication. End quote. Now, we find out later on that this is because they speak telepathically. They're, they, you know, There's evidence that they're almost too lazy to vocalize. They're capable of communicating through vocally, but they just communicate telepathically because it's easier it's a convenient device for lovecraft so he doesn't have to learn the character doesn't have to learn a whole new alien language he can just speak telepathically with these creatures once he figures out how to do it it's basically a matter of concentrating um but first he's trying to speak to him these different languages so he tries some native american languages he's picked up he tries greek galatian portuguese um, other kind of local spanish languages you know they all fail ultimately um, but he finds out they have these psychic powers, so he's able to begin to communicate with them, um, and then for much of the f- next few chapters, was we get the um, the description of their society and their culture, right? So this civilization is called, well, the place is called Kenyan, Kenyan, K apostrophe N Y A N. This is what our narrator adapts from Zamacona's Spanish script as Zinian, and he kind of, you know. I guess anglicizes it a little bit to get this. We learn about their religion. We learn about their culture. We learn about their, their society, their political system, and all these things. And basically we're given the picture of, of advanced, mechanized uh, culture. It's very industrial, but almost post-industrial in that the, the people of Kenyan don't really engage in labor anymore. They have slaves to do that sort of thing. Um, so labor is still done, but it's done by a slave class of of, of quasi humans. They're basic. Sometimes they're Indians that kind of travel, came down, and get enslaved. Other times it's the people of Kinney themselves who are punished, and they're transformed into these sort of mindless slave beasts. Uh, the biggest feature of their civilization, though, is boredom, and this is why it's it's clear he's trying to describe a a, a a decadent society which the elder things and the and like the ithians don't seem to share that that um the ithians are very curious they're explorers still even though their civilization's dying they can travel through time so it's not a real pressing matter for them this civilization though is very very bored so much bored is almost self-destructive um quote um Many things which Zamakona learned about Kingnyan in his first colloquy left him quite breathless. He learned, for instance, that during the past few thousand years, the phenomenon of old age and death had been conquered, so that men no longer grew feeble or died except through violence or will. By regulating the system, one might be as physiologically young and immortal as he wished, and the only reason why any allowed themselves to age was that they enjoyed the sensation in a world where stagnation and commonplaceness would reigned. They could easily become young again when they felt like it births had ceased except for experimental purposes since a large population had been felt needless by the master race which controlled nature and organic rivals alike. Many, however, chose to die after a while since despite the cleverest efforts to invent new pleasures the ordeal of consciousness became too dull for sensitive souls especially those in whom time and cetacean had blinded the primal instincts and emotions of self-preservation. All the members of the group before Zamakona were from 500 to 1500 years old and several had seen surface visitors before though time had blurred the recollections so that's that's a long quote but it really describes this this boredom in their their culture right so what do they do well they have this ability to sort of project themselves mentally um they can now he's getting some of this it seems from uh the the uh, the coming race which was published like 30 years before this, but it has, you know, these underground people who have some kind of magic abilities. It's all, it's all explained in The Coming Race uh, as, a, as a kind of almost a whole mythology and a whole, you know, kind of magical system that they have. Here it's, uh, you know, Lovecraft's clearly kind of building off of this, but it's, it's a little more loosely defined here. But they have this ability to sort of manipulate matter and uh, transport themselves and it's something that zamakona eventually learns himself uh they're able to travel in dreams so they're they're, they're dreamers in the sense of the dreamland tales they, there seems to be a slight connection to that um quote by aid of this method certain dreamers even paid half material visits to a strange and nebulous realm of mounds and valleys and varying light which some to believe the forgotten outer world Unquote. so is that the surface? I guess it's it could be the surface, but I, I want to think maybe it's even the dream ones that, that he's, he's connecting to a little bit. Um, we get a little bit about their government. We get about that. It's basically anarchic anarcho-communism. It's kind of a, of a post-industrial, post-scarcity socialism that's developed. But this has led just people being bored. They're not creative anymore. In fact, one thing they do is like these gladiator fights. And sometimes people are even suicidal and kill themselves and want to die because they're they're basically reached there's nothing interesting in their existence um so there's so much great stuff here about this and then this is all contrasted with these dynamic empires of the euro Euro europeans as they're conquering the americas Uh, at the end of chapter four he writes um the thing which seemed to displease the men of sath i think that's the city sath is the city Kinyang is like maybe the whole civilization um, was the fact that curious and adventurous strangers were beginning to pour into these parts of the upper world where the passages to Kinyay lay. Zamacona told them of the founding of Florida and New Spain and made it clear that a great part of the world was stirring with the zest of adventure. Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English. Sooner or later, Mexico and Florida must meet in one great colonial empire, and then it would be hard to keep outsiders from the rumored gold and silver of the abyss. Charging Buffalo knew of Zamacona's journey into the earth, would he tell Coronado or someone let a report get to the great viceroy? You know, unlike that. But the, that's presented as a fear. That's what they're fear. They're fearing some outside contact. But there's also a contrast between the decadent dying empire and the dynamic growing empire uh, reflected in the Spanish and Portuguese um, efforts. So, um, after ch- chapter four is the bulk of where we get the description of the civilization, although we get other. T- hints at it in later chapters and then we get chapters five and six which really centers on i guess it's the adventure tale that's one thing i like about this is you have a nice little adventure story because he zamakona wants to leave with gold i mean that's he tries to leave with gold but they want him to stay they say you can't leave you're gonna bring outsiders we don't want outsiders here so you're stuck here but you know it'll be sweet you know there'll be babes and they even try to hook him up with some kind of princess. Uh, you know, they—they're—you know—you can live our life. You'll live forever, perhaps. It'll be all good for you, but you can't leave. And Zamakona wants to leave. Eventually, he gets—he stays for like five years before he starts to really get the itch to to leave. Um, you know, partially because he wants the gold. He wants to take the gold and leave and be a rich Spaniard, and which is the whole reason he went on this expedition in the first place. Um, but he also finds that this civilization really doesn't have much to offer. It's kind of a dead end culturally, and he wants to to leave to be in a civilization that's alive and expanding and growing, I think. At least that's the subtext I sort of uh, see here. Um, the religion, there's a lot of weird, wonderful religious stuff, too. There's, for instance... Uh, um, there's like a Reformation at some point in their history. I think it's talked about in chapter five. There's a Reformation of sorts, where people start to embrace another religion, and it kind of leads society in weird ways. And then they actually have to ban that religion, you know. And some people still sort of worship it, um, but it's kind of hidden parts of of the civil. It's kind of a locked away. They try to hide that past. It reminds me maybe of like the the Akhenaten Reformation in ancient Egypt, right? How during that one reign, there was this like new religion, this kind of quasi-monotheism where they worship only the sun god. And as soon as he died, I guess his son was Tutankhamun, right? They immediately like abolished the, that religion and tried to go back to the old ways. Forget that happened. There's kind of a history like that here, too. Um, we also get a lot about the slavery uh, and how they would you know, take these people who were being punished for whatever. A lot of these were criminals or outsiders who came in and didn't conform they just get uh you know their minds and bodies destroyed and transformed into these quasi-human uh slaves um so anyways uh a lot going on here he even connects it to the witches' sabbath some of those religious experiences quote as time progressed he noticed an increasing tendency of the people to resort to dematerialization as an amusement so that the apartments and amphitheaters of South became veritable witches' Sabbath of transmutations, age adjustments, death experiments and projections. With the growth of boredom and restlessness, he saw cruelty and subtlety and revolt were growing apace. End quote. This I really think is his vision of a of of where Western civilization is going. At least if I want to connect you to the letters, it seems this is the clearest description of what he thinks the long term consequences of material progress mechanization uh, you know you know where he sees western civilization going he thinks it's just going to be culturally kind of vapid and you'll just have kind of pleasures and amusements it's it's really fun here how he makes it people can like age themselves and experience death and then kind of restore their you know their youth and go back to that or they can even like do these gladiator fights where they're physically wounded and dying but restore themselves it's and then you've got people who just choose to die because essentially out of boredom, they just will themselves to, to die. Um, Really wild stuff, but they, you know, the witch's Sabbath, of course, associated with sexual excess, the use of magic, this transgressive ideas. It's, it's actually probably could be broken down here a little bit more if we think about Lovecraft's views of witches um, as reflected in stories. We'll be reading a story in the future, which talks about witches, dreams in the witch house and that he kind of connects to modern science and mathematics in really interesting ways, but it's, um, you know, there's a little bit there about like the witches, um, but this is maybe not insignificant that he compares what he's seen here with the witches Sabbath. Um, so then we get the escape attempt. So much of the rest of Zamakona's manuscript deals with, the uh, escape attempts. So the first escape attempt, uh, fails, um, and he's helped by like this woman that he's sort of, they, they set up for him to marry. She is kind of of a lesser royal family, like a dead, you know, like royal line or a service credit line. And, you know, she's willing to help him to leave. Um, and he kind of packs up the gold. He's trying to leave with the gold and he fails. Uh, they, pun- they basically tell him like, you can't leave and we'll punish you if you try to leave, but you're welcome to stay here and be a good. You know one of us and enjoy our culture um, he accepts this for a while waits a while continues to write his manuscript and eventually tries to uh, escape again this time this, the later time when he tries to escape he tries it using the transmutation uh, ability that he's learned he's learned how to do this like the people of kenyan where they're able to project themselves disappear themselves and, and manipulate matter in order to move around on the scene and he tries that and this effort also also fails So this sort of ends amakuna's uh, manuscript and uh, we actually never get the full story because obviously he couldn't write the manuscript after he was captured so it basically ends with this final escape attempt that he tries to make and you know the implication is he he failed but he was able to get the manuscript. To the entry, exit, right, close enough to the mound so other people are able to see it. So instead, he doesn't; he's not able to get the gold out, but he is uh, able to get the manuscript out. But there's a little ambiguity. Maybe he gets out, right? Um, maybe there's a potential he gets out because we don't got the manuscript. Now, this whole part—it's the bulk of the story, obviously—is the narrator is still our ethnographer, but he's translating and interpreting. This Spanish, the 16th century Spanish text by Zamacona, you know, changes some of the wording, filling in holes. So it has the same function as the hieroglyphics and the cave drawings and the the the, the bas relief uh, artwork in uh, in the city of the Elder Things. Um, or like in the Nameless City, you have the same device being used. This is much better. It's, it's more believable because you actually have a text that can be analyzed, right, not just pictures. Um, but anyways, that's good. It's great stuff. So chapters three through six are the bulk of our look at this civilization. And within it, we get a nice little adventure story, which I really think makes it worth, worth checking out. Now, the final chapter of the story uh, basically is... Uh, Kind of the resolution. It's it's very Lovecraftian in that we have something happen to to our narrator. He doesn't tell it till the final line of the story. He builds up to it. Um, it's not particularly scary. It's not particularly freaky. But you know what really is great about Lovecraft stories are the are is the imagination that goes into it. Not the, the jump scare at the end. Right. There's it's very rarely does it do that. There's a few kind of creepy ones, um, that that get a little wild, but. You know, you, if you've read these Lovecraft stories, you know what I'm talking about. Like this, It's kind of the, the scare at the end is kind of underwhelming. Um, but, but so that's all contained in Chapter 7. But basically what happens is he, he kind of reads through this manuscript, gets down the story, and he, he kind of understands Zamakona's tale as, as he understands it as, as best he can. And he goes back to the village, um, Binger. He goes back to Binger. And he's trying to get a second expedition together that's going to kind of go back and, and find this civilization. So he has this hope of actually finding it uh, with the help of the people of Binger. Now, one reason he wants to go back is he's he doubts. I mean, like anyone would. You know, this is just some kook uh, who wrote this tale. There's no reason to believe any of this because it's just a manuscript that he dug up in this mound. Not that far from the surface. There are some weird things like the... The material of the tube is is wild. Uh, the attraction between the amulet he wears and you got Indian mythologies connecting to the mound. So there's something going on there, but he certainly doesn't believe everything in Zamakona's manuscript. So really what the the final chapter does is it it makes him a believer. So we really realize, oh, this is all true, right? Or at least uh, you know the description is somewhat true. And the other kind of aspect of it is Zamakona was captured um and transformed into a a slave, uh, one of these mindless slaves, and he's kind of can live eternally, but he, he's forced to just guard this entryway, right? So the ghosts that the people of Binger are seeing and the experiences that people had earlier, like the earlier people who investigated the mound and see, saw something strange, they're seeing Zamacona, essentially. Uh, the proof for this comes in the end is that there's a uh, a crude uh, Spanish, bad, gra- poorly written, you know, with bad grammar, because it was written by the people of Kenyan who don't know Spanish that well. They they write a warning message on his clothing that he's able to see and read. But, anyways, he, he his his initial plan is get the people get put together a real proper expedition to here and dig around and see what's really going on there because this is all a little too wild to believe. So eventually he does get his supplies together and he goes back for a second expedition. Uh, this time he goes alone though. He's not able to get anyone to really go along with him. They're still fearful of the mound. He goes there and the first thing he finds are tools. He finds like, as he digs down, he in, in, in descends into, into the mound the same way I presumably Zamakona went down um, or at least where he's trying to escape from. Uh, the whole geography is, is, you know, there's different entrances into this underground Civilization, and they try to close them off and guard them, so people can't transport between them. But he goes down, he finds like uh, some of his like tools of previous people who went there. So like the guy who went mad and, and came back to Binger, ranting about uh, stuff. You know, he actually got down and saw something, right? So he sees some of this equipment. He also sees evidence of things being dematerialized and changed, uh, which lends some truth to what zamakona is saying about their abilities and finally he sees these slaves uh, and one he sees that he's he deduces is zamakona you know freaks him out and then this leads him to to flee the mound and come back to binger write this account and warn people not to do this so it's very class the ending is very lovecraftian in that you have someone learning the truth and then trying to warn other people not to investigate that truth any further so that's that's the story. Uh, you know, I don't want these investigations of the revisions to be quite as detailed as the main series is. I want to touch them because they are mixed. But th- this is a I spend a little bit more time on the mound because it's very long, but also because it really is Lovecraft's story by and large. Uh, Celia Bishop's hand in it was minimal, not insignificant. I mean, she of course has the original idea that Lovecraft was able to run with, but he does so much more with it than Celia Bishop ever intended. Uh, and it is really an equal and in some ways even better I think than at the mountains of madness or the shadow over time out of time, other stories that look at ancient civilizations. Uh, so much more history, so much more detail, uh, partially because we're seeing a civilization as it's alive and we, and we see people actually experiencing it and writing it down. We have actually documents, which is, is, is nice. And there's not you know it's a fairly coherent, story were given because Zamakono lived with them for years right it's it almost like the device is almost like some of those utopian novels and I, and I think it is you can see the influence of uh, the coming race in in the story so I think this is a really great one and uh, I think it's really worthy to dig into what he's trying to say about this civilization it seems to be um, his vision of what a, a civilization in decadent decline would look like and 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 maybe that's the future of the West, if it if it can't restore uh, true creativity and art and culture, um, which, as we've seen, and we looked at the letters, he thinks Western civilization's kind of turned a uh, irreversible corner, uh, and that's and this is kind of where he's going with it. So it's not so much that the civilization is that f- scary; it's it's the fear is in this realization that this that we're not alone, right? There's a deeper history. Um, uh, it fits into the cosmic horror in that sense. But even though it's very much set on Earth, um, but then you get these t- these senses of Cthulhu and Yeg, other gods um, are mentioned and be- worshipped by these people. So there's reasons to believe that those religions are true. So it's it fits into the cosmic mythology quite well. Um, but I love it. I love I really like the story. Maybe because of its setting, maybe because of its connection to 16th century history, it's the geography of it is really, really fascinating. You know, I, I set out with this podcast to really talk about Atlantic history with uh Lovecraft. I still think that's primarily where where we should kind of historically interpret his works. I think that's you know, with you know you see it again and again that's really where his vision is he is he's at the sea and he's in the Atlantic um, largely there's other places he goes and travels to in his writing but that seems to be the focus um, and I think the whole history of the Atlantic with slavery and the slave trade and immigration are something that's very much on Lovecraft's mind but we've got to remember Atlantic history also includes the conquest of the Americas and that means the displacement of Indians and the you know the empire building of the Spani- Spanish and Portugal, and later of England, it's all there. It's part of this history, right? And this story allows him to really broaden his geography. And th- th- I also think there's really a lot more to be st- to say about his views of geography, urban geography certainly. It doesn't really, it does actually it does play a role here because we get a look at a city, right? But um, his broader geography of America and the Atlantic world. Uh, this story certainly expands that along along with the Curse of Yig. Um so that's my case that we should read and pay attention to the mound if if you're if you haven't read this before if you've read anthologies and didn't have access to the story because it wasn't included dig it up and, and read it because it's really a wonderful story i think it's by, by far the favorite of the revisions so far um Anyways, next episode I'll be looking at the final Zelia Bishop uh, revision. That's Medusa's Coil, um, pub- written in 1930, uh, published in 1939, uh, after Lovecraft had already died. Um, now this is a very controversial story. Um, in fact, it's you know so, you know I like to do the audiobooks for these, and there weren't that many audiobook versions of Medusa's Coil. It's like even like the audiobook readers who are reading all of these Lovecraft stories and even the revisions. There's a whole bunch of people doing that on YouTube. Um, this one has not been the focus of a lot of attention by, by them. It's, it's one of those stories, like the street maybe, that that kind of gets set aside as like the, the, the cancelable stories, right? The ones we shouldn't read. The ones we, we should just uh, say, this was Lovecraft at his, ra- at his racist worst. Um, and therefore, maybe we should just try to ignore and pretend the story doesn't exist. I obviously won't do that. I will be reading Medusa's Coil and giving you my thoughts about it. Um, I think it's actually pretty interesting because we go to another place. We go to the American South and we get a look at a different history. Um, We kind of go back to talking about art, which is a great theme. We've seen that show up a lot in Lovecraft stories. Um, And it's a very major theme here. This story cannot be uh, just ignored. It has to be grappled with um, as disgusting as it might be uh, from time to time. Um, it's also one of our closest. As, as much as, as you know, we say a lot about Lovecraft's racism. He doesn't write that much about black people, and you know, so we get it here, right? Um, so it's a, it's a it's a window into how he sees African American history, almost. And yeah, he's not the guy you go to. I mean, I'm not saying we got you know Lovecraft's a great guy to go to to, to understand the African American experience. Obviously not, but. You know, if we're going to talk about his racism, we got to look at his most racist tales, and this, um, this I guess qualifies, perhaps. Uh, so, anyways, we'll be talking about that in the next episode. So, if you're reading along, read Medusa's Coil. Uh, it's not that long; it's ten thousand, no, seventeen thousand words. It's actually it's fairly lengthy. Um, half the length of um, of the Mound. Wow. But the, the mound was what? Let me double check. 30,000 words. Medusa's coil, 17,000 words. Um, but it doesn't feel as, as heavy as the mound, I guess, or as epic. But it's an interesting story nonetheless. So I am looking forward to giving you some of my thoughts about Medusa's coil in the next episode. In the meantime, if you have any of your final thoughts about the mound that you want to share with me, please do. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and that'll be it Uh, I'll see you next time thanks for listening